From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, as always, Marie, Jessica, Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katarina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my three Emmas, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, well, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me a bit and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written ahead of time with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. Today's podcast is going to be about the Lindbergh kidnapping. Without further ado, let's jump right into the backstory, which was quite surprising to me. To get the full picture, we must go back a couple of generations. Charles August Lindbergh, born Carl Manson, was born in Stockholm, Sweden in 1859. His mother had been the 19-year-old mistress of Ola Manson, who had been a bank manager. When Ola had been accused of bribery and embezzlement, he quickly changed his name to August Lindbergh, abandoned his wife and seven children, took his mistress and their infant son, and immigrated to Minnesota in the United States. So Ola became August and Carl became Charles. August and his mistress went on to have six more children. He owned a farm and did blacksmith work, finally marrying his mistress after 26 years. Little Carl, now young Charles, excelled in school and went on to law school at the University of Michigan Law School, graduating in 1883 at the age of 24. He was the prosecuting attorney for Morrison County, Minnesota for two years, then later was elected to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1906 when he was around 47 years old. Ten years later, he campaigned to have a seat in the Senate, but was unsuccessful. Charles married a woman named Mary in 1887 when he was 27 years old. They went on to have two, some sources say three, daughters together. Unfortunately, Mary died in 1898. Two years later, Charles married a woman named Evangeline. Now... Evangeline was an instant stepmother and was tasked with finishing raising Charles's daughters, and they didn't really get along. And blended families are difficult sometimes. The couple had one son together, though, Charles Augustus, in 1902. But Charles Sr. and Evangeline grew apart and wound up living in separate residences eventually. So when World War I began in Europe in 1914, Charles Sr. made his wants known that the United States would not join in, and it is said this is why he was not able to join the Senate. He lost the bid to another man who wanted the U.S. to get involved. He was also very outspoken about his criticism of the Federal Reserve. He said, quote, 
When the president signs this bill, the invisible government by the monetary power will be legalized. The people may not know it immediately, but the day of reckoning is only a few years removed. The worst legislative crime of the ages is perpetrated by this banking bill. End quote. And if you are familiar with the history and current issues with the U.S. Federal Reserve, well, you'll see what he meant and how correct he was. He actually brought articles of impeachment against members of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, charging that they were involved, quote, in a conspiracy to violate the Constitution and laws of the United States, end quote. Charles wrote and published Banking, Currency, and the Money Trust, as well as writing an anti-war strong attack titled, quote, Your Country at War and What Happens to You After a War. The first chapter stated, quote, It is impossible, according to the big press, to be a true American unless you are pro-British. If you are really for America first, last, and all time, and solely for America and for the masses primarily, then you are classed as pro-German by the big press, which is supported by the speculators, end quote. So as you see, it doesn't take a big leap to understand that he was quite controversial, but he deeply loved his place as a citizen of the United States. So for a recap, Ola Manson, after some rather shocking scandals, changed his name to August Lindbergh and moved from Sweden to the United States, specifically Minnesota, with his mistress and their son, abandoning his original wife and a bushel of children. He and his mistress' son, Charles Sr., went on to become a lawyer and a politician who was very against World War I and the Federal Reserve, which was also quite scandalous for the times. Charles Sr.'s first wife died, and his second wife gave birth to Charles Jr. in Detroit, Michigan. From this point on, we will call Charles Jr. just Charles, as he is now one of the main focuses of this story. Charles's parents indeed separated when he was only seven years old. His father had written a book, quote, Why is your country at war? End quote. And the books were actually seized by federal agents. It has since been reprinted if you're interested. His mother, Evangeline, was an educated woman and had been a chemistry teacher at a local high school. Now, due to his father's political career, as well as his parents' less than harmonious marriage, mainly due to his mother's discord with her stepdaughters, Charles attended many schools from coast to coast throughout his childhood. It was said he was never enrolled in the same school for more than a couple of years at a time. But during this time, the United States was in the throes of the Industrial Revolution, right? The economy was being dominated by industry and machine manufacturing, finding new uses for iron and steel, new energy sources, including fuels and coal, steam engines, electricity, petroleum, internal combustion engines, and on. We basically see the dawn of the factory environment. The first mass-produced car was beginning to come off the assembly lines when Charles was still a very young child and he was witnessing all of this in spellbound wonder. From a very early age, Charles was supremely interested in how motorized transportation worked, namely the mechanics behind it. He was fascinated with his family's first car and then his first motorbike. This love never changed all throughout high school. So when he started college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, he was a mechanical engineering student and was immediately drawn to aviation, though he had never even been in a plane. 
but he quit college when he was 20 years old and enrolled at the Nebraska Aircraft Corporation's flying school in Lincoln. And after only a couple of months, he flew for the very first time as a passenger in a two-seater biplane. Now, whether or not he had been very aware of his father and grandfather's dealings with women or what, he later wrote about his feelings on the matter of romance. He criticized the other pilots that he had met early in his life, stating they were superficial womanizers. Charles had said that he believed his ideal relationship would be with a woman from good genes in good health and highly intelligent, and that the relationship would be for the long haul. He indicated from his experience of his family's farms that breeding had taught him the importance of good heredity. Anne Morrow was the daughter of Dwight Morrow, who was a partner at J.P. Morgan Company. And most of my listeners are from the United States and therefore would have heard of J.P. Morgan, but for everyone else, this is an absolutely huge and important financial company for commercial and investment banking. Dwight, who was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico and a U.S. senator, was also Charles's financial advisor, and that is how Charles met Anne. And Anne had everything Charles wanted. She was obviously from a successful family, we already know about her father. Her mother was a poet and a teacher, active in women's education, and acted as the president of the college she attended. Anne's parents had raised their children in a Calvinist environment. So Calvinism is the theological system of John Calvin and his followers, marked by a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God the depravity of humankind, and the doctrine of predestination. Her parents pushed for achievement. Anne's mother read to her and her siblings for at least an hour every night. The children flourished because of that, becoming avid readers and writers themselves. Anne actually went on to publish her diaries, and they were critically acclaimed. She was the president of the student body and went on to graduate with a Bachelor of Arts degree, and she was absolutely beautiful. By the time they met, Charles had already made a name for himself as a pilot. It would take a considerable amount of time, guys, to list out all of his achievements, but to narrow it down. He earned money to further his flying lessons by performing stunts and tricks in planes for entertainment called barnstorming. One of the stunts was being a wing walker, where people stand on the wings during flight as well as parachuting. He also dabbled in airplane mechanics at the municipal airport in Billings, Montana. He soon purchased his first plane which was a leftover World War I biplane named Jenny for $500, which equates to around $8,500 today. After that, he was nearly constantly in the air flying. He even called himself, quote, Daredevil Lindbergh, and people were paying attention. He flew physicians around on emergency calls where normal land travel was impossible due to flooding or what have you. And he had a few nail-biting close calls and eventually sold his Jenny to a flying student. He took military flight training with the U.S. Army Air Service and graduated first in his class in 1925. All of this accomplished by the time he was just 22 years of age. He earned his Army pilot's wings and was a second lieutenant. He then worked as an airmail pilot out of St. Louis, Missouri, where he was also a flight instructor from there to Chicago. And again, there were a few close calls. Then he went to San Diego and helped design the Spirit of St. Louis, a fabric-covered, single-seat, single-engine, high-wing monoplane. 
1927, Charles took off from Roosevelt Field, Long Island, and over the next 33 and a half hours, he flew from Long Island, New York, and landed just northeast of Paris, France. He faced a lot of scary challenges, but he made it. He received an unimaginable amount of fame and adulation for his historic flight. The New York Times printed a page-wide headline, quote, Lindbergh does it, all caps. The press surrounded his mother's house. Many magazines and publications, as well as radio shows, were begging him to let them interview him, not to mention the plethora of job offers just thrown at his feet. President Calvin Coolidge awarded him the Distinguished Flying Cross. He was being invited to accompany the mayor of New York and bring with him his mother and be the guest of honor at a 500-guest banquet and dance called the We Banquet. Charles was promoted to the rank of colonel in the Air Corps, and then a few months later, a special act of Congress awarded him the Medal of Honor. The next year, in 1928, Charles was honored as the first Time Magazine's Man of the Year and appeared on the cover. All of this, and he was just now 25 years old. And then his 318-page autobiography that he had written was published, the first of a total of 15 books that he would go on to write or at least make a large contribution to. He traveled the world, and during this, he met Anne. When Anne met Charles, she wrote about him in her diary, saying, quote, He is taller than anyone else. You see his head in a moving crowd, and you notice his glance, where it turns as though it were keener, clearer, and brighter than anyone else's, lit with a more intense fire. What could I say to this boy? Anything I might say would be trivial and superficial, like pink frosting flowers. I felt the whole world before this to be frivolous, superficial, ephemeral. End quote. The pair were married in 1929 when Anne was 23 and Charles was 27. Charles had her flying in no time, and a year into the marriage, she became the first American woman to earn a first-class glider pilot's license. Together, this amazing couple explored and charted air routes between continents. I mean, guys, can you imagine? What a power couple. They were also the first to fly from Africa to South America. I mean, this is amazing stuff. So Charles and Anne had their first child, Charles. So I'm just going to call him Baby Charles to save on confusion. He was born in June of 1930. The new parents had purchased a beautiful, sprawling 390-acre estate on the rural outskirts of Hopewell, New Jersey, and they named the estate Highfields. They bought the estate for many reasons, one of them being that while they appreciated how much people loved them, and especially Charles, they wanted their home to be a bit removed from the constant cameras and media spotlight. You would think Charles had indeed walked the straight and narrow his entire life, right? Kept his nose clean, associated with the upper crust of society, to go along with his incredible drive in his career, but there were whispers of things not so cookie-cutter regarding Charles. Some sources reported that Charles was a bit of a social misfit, a rigid loner that found what we would think of as cruel jokes as funny. One story of his pranks from one of his former roommates was that he filled a pitcher meant for water to drink with kerosene. The roommate took a big gulp and it nearly killed him. So I add this to keep it at least noteworthy. 
It was said that the construction of the estate they would call home began and baby Charles was left with Anne's parents while Anne and her husband flew to survey the Orient. But a few months later, they came back because Anne's father had unfortunately died. Construction was still ongoing but was becoming livable. So Charles, Anne, and baby Charles would stay in the home over weekends before leaving. Charles off to his job in New York with the transcontinental air transport, and Anne would go to her mother's home. In February 1932, on the usual Monday where Anne would travel with the baby to her mother's home, it appeared one-and-a-half-year-old baby Charles had developed a slight cold and Charles told Anne to just stay in the new home rather than traveling with the sick baby in the winter weather. The next day, Tuesday, at 7.30 p.m., Anne and baby Charles's nanny, Betty, put the baby to bed. They locked two of the three sets of shutters on his windows in his room, main reasons being that the third set were warped and they just wouldn't latch. Just before 8 p.m., Nanny Betty checked in on the baby and all seemed well. Around 8.25 p.m. and 45 minutes later than his usual arrive time at home, Charles drove up the drive to the house while honking his horn. He went inside where he and Anne had dinner together and then went into the living room to sit together and chat as couples do. Around 9.15 p.m., Charles stated he heard a sound that likened it to the cracking of an orange crate falling off of a chair. How very specific. Anne said she hadn't heard anything, and their dog, a Boston Terrier, didn't bark or alert to anything. A few minutes later, Anne went to her bedroom to settle in and read while Charles took a bath. At 10 p.m., Charles was in his study when Nanny Betty entered, asking him if he had the baby. Instantly, Charles shot up out of his chair. He ran upstairs and into the nursery. Anne came out of the bedroom at the same time, and Charles allegedly said to her, quote, Anne, they have stolen our baby, end quote. So the couple and all of the staff began frantically searching the house. Charles got in his car and began driving up and down the drive, flashing his headlights into the woods, but the baby could not be found. Charles then went back into the house and up to the nursery, alone, I might add, and found a sealed envelope in plain view on the radiator beneath the window. He demanded no one should touch it to preserve any possible fingerprints. The police were alerted. Inside the sealed envelope was a ransom note with many misspellings. It stated, quote, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $2,500 in $20 bills, one $5,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for the police, the child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. End quote. The ransom would be equal to $845,000 today. There were no real fingerprints on the envelope or letter, nor were there any fingerprints in the entire nursery, including the staff or both Charles and Anne, oddly. It appeared every surface had been wiped clean. An article written for New England Today Living stated, quote, Minimal precautions were taken to preserve evidence outside the house, where the police found two holes in the soft ground below the nursery window with the warped shutters, the only window in the entire house that didn't latch from the inside. In the brush, they found an odd homemade ladder. Any other clues that may have existed were obliterated by the horde of police and press who trampled the grounds. End quote. 
The FBI files indicated that traces of mud were found on the floor in the nursery. Footprints, impossible to measure, were found under the nursery window. Two sections of the ladder had been used to reach the window. One of the two sections was split or broken where it joined together, meaning it had broken during the kidnapping, which was most likely what Charles had heard. There was no blood anywhere in or around the crime scene, along with no fingerprints. The police questioned all household members and staff, and their personal lives were investigated. Charles appealed to all friends and acquaintances to help him spread the word to the kidnappers in an attempt to get them to begin negotiations. It was said that even certain, quote, underworld characters were dealt with in attempts to contact the kidnappers, which brought forward clues that were investigated and exhausted. The next month, a second ransom note with odd misspellings again was received by Charles. It said, quote, Dear Sir, we have warned you not to make anything public. Also, notify the police. Now you have to take consequences. Means we will have to hold the baby until everything is quiet. We cannot make any appointment just now. We know very well what it means to us. It is really necessary to make a world affair out of this or to get your baby back as soon as possible to settle those affair in a quick way will be better for both. Don't be afraid about the baby. Keeping care of us day and night. We also will feed him according to the diet. We are interested to send him back in good health. And ransom was made us for $50,000. But now we have to take another person to do it and probably have to keep the baby for a longer time as we expected. So the amount will be $70,000, $20,000 in $50 bills, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. Don't mark any bills or make them from one serial number. We will inform you later where to deliver the money. But we will not do so until the police is out of the case and the papers are quiet. The kidnapping we prepared in years, so we are prepared for everything. So the kidnappers asked for an additional $70,000, which is roughly $1.18 million today. The governor of New Jersey called for a police conference. Prosecuting officials were in attendance as well as police authorities and government representatives. They discussed possible theories and procedures that could be followed. Private investigators were also on the investigation, hired. By Charles and Anne's attorney. Two days later, the second ransom note was received. A third was received by Charles and Anne's attorney, again with many misspellings. It stated, quote, Dear Sir, did you receive our letter from March 4? We sent the mail on one off the letter near Borough Hall, Brooklyn. We know police interfere with your private mail. How can we come to any arrangements this way? In the future, we will send our letters to Mr. Breckenbridge at 25 Broadway. We believe police captured two letter and let not forwarded to you. We will not accept any go-between from your scent. We will arrange these later. There is no worry about the boy. He is very well and will be feed according to the diet. Best dank for information about it. We are interested to send your boy back in good health. It is necessary to make a world affair out of it or to get your boy back as soon as possible. Why did you ignore our letter which we left in the room the baby would be back long ago? Why would you not get any result from police because our kidnapping was planned for a year already? But we were afraid the boy would not be strong enough. Our ransom was made out for 
$50,000, but now we have put another to it as properly have to hold the baby longer as we expect. So it will be $70,000, $20,000 in $50 bills, $25,000 in $25 bills, $12,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. We warn you again to not mark any bills or take them for one, sir. No, we will inform you later how to deliver the money, but not before the police is out of the case and the papers are quiet. End quote. The next day, a fourth ransom note was received by an accepted kind of go-between that stated, quote, Dear Sir, if you are willing to act as go-between in the Lindbergh case, please follow strictly instruction. Handle enclosed letter personally to Mr. Lindbergh. It will explain everything. Don't tell anyone about it. As soon as we find out the press or police is notified, everything are canceled and it will be a further delay. After you get the money from Mr. Lindbergh, perk these three words in the New York American money is ready. After notice, we will give you further instruction. Don't be afraid. We are not out for your thousand dollar. Keep it. Only act strictly. Be at home every night between 6 and 12. By this time, you will hear from us. End quote. Now, the enclosed letter said, Dear Sir, Mr. Condon may act as go-between. You may give him the $70,000. Make one packet the size will be about, then a sketch of a box. We have notified you're already in what kind of bills. We warn you not to set any trap in any way. If you or someone else will notify the police, there will be a further delay. After we have the money in hand, we will tell you where to find your boy. You may have an airplane ready. It is about 150 miles away. But before telling you, the, oh, doctor, a delay of eight hours will be between, end quote. And I've read this verbatim with the spelling. So the go-between got the money and used a newspaper column to communicate and begin payment negotiations. Three days later, another ransom note read, quote, Dear Sir, our man failed to collect the money. There are no more confidential conference after we meeting from March 12th. Those arrangements are hazardous for us. We will not allow our man to confer in a way like before. Circumstance will not allow us to make transfer like you wish. It is impossibly for us. Why should we move the baby and face danger? To take another person to the place is entirely out of question. It seems you are afraid if we are the right party and if the boy is all right. Well, you have our signature. It is always the same of the first one, especially them three holes. Now, we will send you the sleep suit from the baby. Besides, it means $3 extra expenses because we have to pay another one. Please tell Mrs. Lindbergh not to worry the baby as well. We only have to give him more food as the diet says. You are willing to pay the 70000 note $50,000 without seeing the baby first or not. Let us know about that in the New York American. We can't do it other ways because we don't like to give up our safety, please, or to move the baby. If you are willing to accept this deal, put this in paper. I accept money is ready. Our program is. After eight hours, we have the money received. We will notify you where to find the baby. If there is any trap, you will be responsible for what follows. End quote. The promised pajamas were delivered to Charles and were positively identified. Back and forth, this is how it went for two months. Professionals examined each note, including the common signature of two blue circles crossing with a red circle in the middle and three black dots and determined they were all written by the same person. They said that based on the misspellings and the use of odd English, the writer must have been German and hadn't spent too much time in the United States. The latter was also examined. 
It was determined that the ladder had been built by someone who was familiar with working with wood and had some experience in building, but the ladder construction itself was not correct. There were no fingerprints on the ladder either. The Attorney General and FBI Director at the time, J. Edgar Hoover, contacted the Trenton, New Jersey police, and they stated that they were free to use the FBI for any resources and would provide assistance as needed, though Charles didn't take them up on that. You must remember that Charles and Anne were top-tier societal celebrities at the time. The entire country and parts of the world were paying very close attention to news about baby Charles. New Jersey State Police offered a $25,000 reward for information pertaining to the case, which would be upwards of $422,700 today. All of this, and Anne was pregnant with her and Charles' second child. Charles was getting quite frustrated at the lack of progress in finding his son, and the ransom payment was put together, packaged in a wooden box. The money included some gold certificates, which were actually about to be withdrawn from circulation, making those much easier to identify when cashed in, and then also money, but the serial numbers on the bills were noted. On May 12, 1932, Two months and ten days after baby Charles had been kidnapped, his remains were found. A delivery truck driver and his assistant were driving down the road when one needed to relieve himself and they pulled over so that he could go have the privacy of a tree, 4.5 miles south of the Lindbergh home. The assistant discovered the body of a toddler there. According to the site crimeofthecentury.weebly.com, baby Charles's body was face downward, covered with leaves and insects. There was not much more than skeletal remains. The vegetation around those darkened to show that there had once been more. The left leg was missing from the knee down. The left and right arms were both missing as well. The remains were so badly decomposed that it was difficult to tell whether the child had been a male or a female initially. But the cause of death was pretty obvious. Blunt force trauma to the head. The remains showed a massive fracture to the skull and it was determined the body had been there for two to three months, which matched the timeline of the missing baby. Also found were his baby clothes and a burlap sack near him. Unfortunately, the nanny and Charles were forced to go identify the remains, which a photo of can be found online. It's a very sad and disturbing picture. I cannot imagine having to do that for your own child. But after positive identification, baby Charles was cremated the next day. Anne gave birth to their second son, John, three months later. There was a big investigation during the time after baby Charles was found. The president of the United States himself got involved, but officials began to suspect that the kidnapper or kidnappers had been someone the Lindberghs personally knew. But a couple of people that had been suspected, even one, ended her own life over the pressure but both had solid alibis and were completely cleared. So they began trying to track and trace the ransom money and remember, they had made it to where it was all traceable. So a presidential order came down stating all gold certificates were to be turned in and exchanged and a few days later before the deadline, a year after the remains had been found, one man by the name of J.J. Faulkner had exchanged $2,980 or $50,380 in today's money. The address he left was visited, but no one by that name lived there. As far as the bills and their movement, 
Over a more than two-year period, a number of them were spent throughout New York City, and it was determined they were being spent along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan, including the German-Austrian neighborhood of Yorkville. So in September 1934, two and a half years after the kidnapping, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a bill that traced back to the ransom that had a New York license plate number written in the margin. That was traced back to a nearby gas station whose owner stated he had written that there because the customer had been acting suspicious. The plates belonged to a man named Richard Hopman who lived in the Bronx. He was an immigrant from Germany who had had a criminal record. At the time of his arrest, he was carrying a single $20 gold certificate and over $14,000 of that ransom money was located in his garage. After being arrested, questioned, and knocked around, if you will, he stated that the money had been left with him by a friend of his named Isidore Fish, but this man had died a few months prior after going back to Germany of tuberculosis. He said he had kept the money because, well, Fish had owed it to him. He never wavered from his innocence regarding baby Charles. At his residence, they found a sketch of a ladder that was similar to the one found at the crime scene. A piece of wood was found in the attic of the home and appeared to match the wood used in the ladder. Richard had also apparently been absent from work on the day of the ransom money delivery and then quit immediately after. His handwriting appeared to match the ransom note. He was convicted of murdering the baby and extortion of Charles Lindbergh and sentenced to death by electrocution in April 1936. And after all of this, the media frenzy and constant coverage and public opinions the stress of it all became too much, and then there were threats and press harassment of their new son, John, forcing the family to leave the States. They uprooted and moved to a house in Kent, and eventually moved again to a small island off the coast of France. Another son, Land, was born in 1937. The family moved back to the U.S. in 1969, and the couple had their first daughter, baby Anne, in 1940. Mother Anne wrote a 41-page booklet titled, quote, The Wave of the Future, A Confession of Faith, which became a bestseller nearly immediately. She and her husband were very much against the U.S. getting involved in World War II, which actually became their quote, fall from grace with society, making people believe that they might have been Nazi sympathizers. The couple had another son, Scott, born in 1942, and their last child, a baby girl named Reeve, in 1945. The couple moved around some, but the couple were married 45 years. It is said that Anne had a three-year-long affair in the early 50s with her personal doctor, but that was nothing compared to the affairs that Charles had. In 1957, in Germany, he met and fell in love with a hat maker. He was 55, and she was just 31 years old. They continued their affair until he died in 1974. Together, they had three children— Dirk, Astrid, and David. He visited his secret family a few times a year, but never revealed himself to be the father of them. At the same time, Charles was also having an affair with the hatmaker's sister, and they too had two children together, with him never revealing he was their father either. And then he was also having an affair with his German translator and private secretary. Together, they also had two children. And again, the fatherhood was kept a secret. So much for his declaration of what relationships were supposed to be. 
Eventually, one of the children confronted their mother, and long story short, all of the children in Germany discovered that George had been their father, who had always supported each of the families, though. His original family found out, and the youngest daughter, Reeve, became very active in integrating them all as family. DNA testing has proven all of this to be true. But everyone was completely surprised and blown away at his secret life away from home. No one had a clue. In total, Charles fathered 13 children with four women. Anne later suffered a series of strokes that left her cognitively and physically disabled in the early 1990s. In 1999, she developed pneumonia and died in 2001 at the age of 94. Reeve wrote a book about her final years titled, quote, No More Words. Anne won several honors and awards throughout her life for her writing and flying. She is a member of several halls of fame. Charles himself spent his last years in Hawaii and died from lymphoma in 1974 and is buried in Maui. His achievements are so vast and overwhelming. If you are interested, truly just look him up. It would take forever to list them. And so that is the story of the Lindberghs. However, that is not the end. You see, many people aren't believing the official story of what happened to baby Charles. Let's get into some theories. And these are always fun. First theory, Charles Lindbergh himself was involved. Many believe he was an inside man because he was acting quite strange on the day his son went missing. On that particular night, he had had plans to attend a social function, but he suddenly changed his plans at the last minute and decided to go home, which was a two-hour drive away. He called the house to mysteriously tell everyone to stay out of the baby's nursery between 8 and 10 p.m. because he didn't want the baby to be coddled. Then once it was discovered the baby was missing... Anne and the house staff, of course, searched the nursery and the rest of the house, and no one saw the ransom note envelope, yet Charles found it when he was looking in the nursery by himself. Also, he had pulled a prank on his wife before with baby Charles when he had hid him in a closet and then left his poor wife and the nanny tearing through the house trying to find him. Of course, that kind of dark humor isn't funny in the slightest, but we already know he had a penchant for over-the-line orneriness. The theory is that perhaps he intentionally or accidentally dropped baby Charles while climbing out of the window with him or perhaps leaning him out of the window, which would explain the severe head trauma, then hid him out in the woods to conceal what happened. Another side theory is the one where that baby Charles was physically disabled and Charles arranged the kidnapping as a way of sending the baby to be raised in Germany. Charles' involvement would also make sense due to the dog never barking, Charles' insistence and stay at the house when she had usually left to go to her mother's. And also the fact that an outsider who wasn't immediately familiar with the family and the house wouldn't know which window to approach after a half-mile-long drive or hike up from the road to the house. And then there's the business of Charles ordering the baby's remains to be cremated before a full official autopsy could be performed. Another theory is that baby Charles was never murdered and that he had survived. In fact, many men have come forward claiming to be the Lindbergh baby and that the kidnapping had been a plot against the family for a whole host of reasons and were raised by another family. Perhaps if baby Charles had had some sort of defect, they had not wanted him for whatever reason. Yet another theory is that Charles had shown some interest in Anne's sister Elizabeth before moving on to Anne and proposing to her. Elizabeth suffered from some sort of heart ailment and that was something Charles would not have wanted to 
let's say, add to his genetic pool, if you will. This theory states that Elizabeth killed baby Charles in a fit of jealous rage a few days before the actual disappearance and that the family worked to cover it up to avoid the scandal. But it is true that not long after the baby disappeared, Elizabeth really was institutionalized for her heart condition. But it is hard to imagine Anne and her mother allowing the baby to just be dumped off of a road in a nearby forest. Some have even theorized that Charles offered his baby son up to help with the study of eugenics. Some close to Lindbergh stated he was unhappy that his firstborn son was a, quote, weakling who had an abnormally large head, and he believed he might have suffered prenatal damage when Anne accidentally inhaled toxic fumes during a cross-country flight. Though controversial, some believed that Charles was a big believer in eugenics and that perhaps he sacrificed his son in the name of science and that baby Charles had died on an operating table. And Lindbergh was seen sitting in German dictator Adolf Hitler's box at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. So you can see where that theory would come from. Now, as far as my opinion goes... It does seem that if the original story isn't true, which it probably is, that perhaps Charles did have a hand in his son's death in some way. Since it was established that he had a rather dark and inappropriate sense of humor, having a roommate drink kerosene that nearly killed him, and even admitting to hiding his own infant son away from his wife, saying he was missing, and all of that seems suspicious for sure. Could he have climbed the ladder to get his son to, say, bring in through the front door as part of another prank since no one outside of the family would have known about the broken window and accidentally dropped him? Plausible. Did he find some issue with his son, making him not want him and murder him or have him murdered? Less likely, but possibly. Tell me, guys, what do you think? I would love to hear your theories and opinions on what happened to the Lindbergh baby. So let me know what you think. Leave me a comment below or you can always DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below in the notes. And most importantly, thank you guys so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 